Hey, I'm Ferdinand, and thanks for checking out the message today. We're glad that you're here, and we would love to get connected with you and your family. One easy way you can do that is to text RiverConnect to 97000. You can also visit our website at theriverchurch.cc to learn more about us and upcoming events. Lastly, if you would like to give to the River Church today, you can text the amount you want to give to 84321, or you can head to our website and click the Give tab at the top of the page. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoyed today's message. I mean, I, I don't know if you felt the spirit in just the worship this morning. It was just awesome, right? The songs are so important for us to, to really take to heart. And we're not just saying a bunch of words, right? When we sing those songs, we're singing praises to God. And it's so awesome to see the body of Christ uh, come together and sing his praises, right? So I'm glad that you are here this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to uh, the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 2 is where we're going to be at. Uh, if you missed the uh, introduction last week by Melvin, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. He, he said that we did time together, <laughs> right? We went, we went to prison together as did ministry. And it's amazing, the Lord worked it out that my brother over here, he's a brother from another mother, but we went to that same prison trip together. And so I'm excited that he's here the way the Lord worked it out. It's kind of cool uh, that we have that, that connection where we can uh, just reflect on some of the good things God has done in my life, in Melvin's life, and uh, my brother's life. His name's John as well. So it's just really cool uh, that, that God makes these things happen, right? And so as we're walking through the book of Ruth, uh, one of the things I want to uh, bring your attention to, just kind of get you caught up if you weren't here last week, what, what Melvin was preaching on and what he taught on was the faithfulness of God, right? Looking at the example of Ruth being faithful to Naomi. And if you're, uh, just to get you caught up, what happened, Naomi is one of the main characters along with Ruth. And uh, Naomi, uh, with her husband Elimelech and her two sons, they were in Israel, in the city of uh, Bethlehem, they were experiencing a famine. And so Elimelech decided to take his family and travel about 90 miles to another country, the country of Moab. Uh, he took his wife and his two sons there as a means to help sustain or get some food because Bethlehem was enduring uh, a season of famine. Uh, the beginning of the book talks about it being of the time of the judges. So uh, there were a lot of people just kind of doing their own thing, not following God. And so there was this famine that occurred. Uh, and so when they moved to the city of, or this country of Moab, we don't know the exact city in the city or the country of Moab that they were living in. Uh, but we know that it was in there in some region of that, that state. And unfortunately, tragedy struck Ruth's or Naomi's family. Uh, the first thing we see recorded in the first chapter is that Naomi's husband passes. And that just crushes her. But, but she has two sons to, to help her through it. And as they stay in the country of Moab, uh, the two sons, like nature, actually, they, they saw some pretty ladies right? And they wanted to get married. And so they did. So they married some Moabite women, one of them being Ruth, which is another main character in the story, and another was Orpah. 
And tragedy again strikes the family of Naomi. And her two sons pass away. And if you were watching and reading uh, through the first chapter there, you see Naomi in an absolute place of utter despair. Like it is, it is a dark place that Naomi is walking. And she tries to urge her two daughter-in-laws and she says, listen, I've got no good thing to offer you. I'm done. I'm washed up in a sense. Go back to your, your mother's house. Go back to your families. Go back to, uh, the, the, in essence, the idols that you worshipped. Go back to them. I've got nothing. You could almost, almost say Naomi was slightly, maybe, suicidal. Because here, if you know the journey, if you're familiar with the terrain from the city of Moab, and you, you see how far of a distance it is to travel to the state uh, of, of Israel and to Bethlehem, it is a very hard journey. It's, it's rocky, it's desert, it's barren, it's mountainous. It's not an easy trip for someone that would be considered elderly to take on their own. She's in a dark, dark place of despair. And so what happens is, is she's trying to convince her daughter-in-laws to go back to their family. She's got nothing to offer. Ruth makes a profound statement. They're actually in an argument. <laughs> Naomi's trying to convince Ruth, hey, go back. I got nothing for you. Don't follow me. I'm going to go walk and take this journey back to my homeland. And she probably thinks if I make it to Bethlehem, I'm just going to sit there and die. Ruth makes a profound statement. She says, listen, where you die, I'm going to die. Where you lay your head to rest, I'm going to lay my head to rest. That's a really strong way to win an argument, especially to somebody that's walking through despair. Naomi realizes real quick, okay, this is, this is not going to go the way I planned. And she, she relents to Ruth's commitment to her. Ruth makes another commitment, not just to the person of Naomi, but she makes a statement of faith in that same argument, and she says, listen, your people are going to be my people. And her statement of faith is this, your God will be my God. Wow, what a profound statement in the, the, that, that Ruth expresses to Naomi and saying, hey, listen, I want your people to be my people, and I want your God to be my God. Maybe that was the part that convinced Ruth where she said, okay, or Naomi, I'm sorry, where that convinced Naomi and she said, okay, you, 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 we can go, you can come with me. And so together they make this journey from wherever they were at in the, in the state or the country of Moab and they walk through the mountains, they get through the terrains and they go past different cities and then they finally make their way back to Bethlehem. And at the end of chapter one, as, Bethlehem, as they walk into Bethlehem, Naomi along with Ruth, they walk in. And you get to really see the state of mind that Naomi is in. Because people come to her and say, hey, isn't this Naomi? Hey, look, at, there's Naomi. And Naomi's immediate response is, don't call me Naomi, which means to be, to be pleasant or pleasant. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. You can see the state of her heart. She is bitter. She's broken. She is grieving at, at a, a, an, in, an intense level of grief. So she tells them, hey, don't call me, don't call me pleasant. Don't, I left full, I come back empty, I've got nothing. Her tank is empty. 
This is where we kind of conclude the end of chapter one, where Naomi is in the state of despair, I would say deep, deep depression. And Ruth, alongside of her, you know, often we forget this. We look at Naomi's state of condition, and we often forget that Ruth also experienced hardship. She lost her husband. She, too, had pain and hurt and sadness in her own heart. And we often miss that, that these are two women who experienced some incredible hardship. And as we go into chapter 2, I'm not going to begin reading at the beginning. We'll pick up in the, in the middle of it, but... To kind of carry the, the story forward, we are introduced to the third main character, and that's the character of Boaz. In the very first part of chapter 2, Ruth and Naomi, they are in a position financially where they are poor. They don't have anything. Their means of operation are, are marginal at best. And so Ruth and Naomi are discussing basically, hey, how are we going to get food in our homes? How are we going to survive? We're here, but now what? There is a law in the Old Testament, you can look at it in Leviticus 19, that talks about uh, the fact that when someone is harvesting their land, it's an Old Testament law, it's the law that is given to help provide for the widowed, the poor, the orphan, and the sojourner. And they are to leave their fields, basically they're not to glean or cut and, and harvest all the fields, they're to leave a portion for those who are in need. It's, it's, a, it's a, a law that was put into place that reflects the character and behavior of God. He doesn't want to be shown as this greedy man that's just after everything he can get. He actually provides for those who are in need, who are, if you would say, misfortunate or find themselves in the place of need. In fact, I want to read a passage in Deuteronomy, if I can. Deuteronomy chapter 24. This kind of really encompasses what this law is intended to do and show the people who operate in Israel how they are to reflect the character and behavior of God. Before we read Ruth chapter 2, I want to read this passage in Deuteronomy 24. It says this in verse 17 of 24, you shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner, that's the foreigner, or to the fatherless, that's the, the orphaned, or take a widow's garment and pledge. Verse 18, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheath in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, that is the foreigner, the fatherless, the orphaned, and the widow. That the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your house or of your, of your hands. And so we see this law instituted, and this is at the end of chapter 1. We see that it is the season for harvesting the barley fields. As Ruth and Naomi come in, and they see this. And so Ruth and Naomi have this conversation at the beginning of chapter 2. And, the, and, and Ruth says, okay, I'm going to go glean these fields. These provisions that were offered uh, to us, because we are sojourners, we, because uh, we are widows, I can go and grab some of this field. I have access to food in this capacity. And Ruth gives her blessing, or Naomi gives her blessing to Ruth and say, okay, go. And as you read that first part, it's really funny. There's a passage in that first part of chapter 2 where it says, And Ruth just so happened to come to the fields of Boaz. Almost like it was an accident. 
Now, how many of you believe Ruth accidentally happened to, just by chance, walk into and come to the field of Boaz? How many of you believe that? No hands going up, right? That's right. It's not an accident. God ordained it. God knew where Ruth was going to go. God planned it. He had ordained that on that same day that Ruth would be going to go get the, the, the gleaning of the, the food or the, of the barley, that Boaz also would be at the field at the same time. So Boaz sees this foreign woman, a Moabite woman, in his field, gleaning, as it is instructed in the law. And he asks his head reaper, the one that's in charge of his fields, Who's, who is this woman? Who, who does this woman belong to? Where did she come from? Why is she here? Right? Like he's curious, like, hey, who is this person? And of course, if you really read into the text, you can tell the gossip mill was rolling. This, this guy knows everything about what has happened. It's spread throughout the city that everybody knows Ruth's business and everybody knows Naomi's business. Because this head reaper is able to explain, and we'll see this in the passage we're going to read as our main text. And so Boaz gets this information, and where we're picking up in the story in, in Ruth chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 8, is where the two begin to meet for the first time. So Ruth chapter 2, verse 8 says this. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in any other field or leave this one. But keep close to my young women and let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and then go after them. He has this rhetorical question, Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? What he's saying is this, it's, he's not asking her a question. He's actually making a statement. I've told the young men to be kind to you. I've told them not to harass you or rebuke you. I've told them to treat you rightly. And of course, he continues in this passage and he says uh, again, And when you are thirsty, go to the vessel and drink what the young men have drawn out. So Boaz is showing Ruth incredible kindness here. And then in verse 10, we see her response. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? You see, Boaz's kindness to Ruth, even Ruth recognizes as abnormal, unusual. And Boaz continues in verse 11, and he says this, and he said to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. There's proof that there was a gossip mill, <laughs> right? He, he's got all the details on Ruth. And how you left your father and left your mother and your native land, and you have come to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you, by the Lord. And I want you to pay attention to this next part. The God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You see, Boaz is affirming Ruth's commitment that we saw in chapter 1 when she said to Naomi, listen, I want your God to be my God. Here, Boaz is affirming that faith in her commitment and saying, listen, I see that you have chosen to take refuge under the wings or the protection of the God of Israel. And so we see Boaz affirming again Ruth's commitment to God. Verse 13, 
And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoke kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And then you see something happen in verse 14 that's absolutely astounding. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some food left over. And we see later in the chapter that she takes that remaining food and she blesses Naomi with that food to provide for her. Let's pray and we're going to kind of walk through how this this passage, this passage can teach us some things that we need to really pay attention to in our own family. So let's go to the Lord and ask him to be present with us this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time where we get to open your word, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would give me uh, the words and the wisdom from your spirit, Lord. I choose to uh, just to die to myself, Lord, and let you and your words reign. And so I ask that be true this morning as we reflect on the the story of Ruth and uh, learn to apply it to our lives. I ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. The story in the book of Ruth, is a, it is a story of a narrative. It's a story. We're trying to figure out what's happening, why it's happening. And one of the things we see in this passage here, right, that we just read from verses 8 through 14, is the incredible story of a man named Boaz and his kindness towards a foreign woman in the land of Bethlehem. Now, Boaz's character is actually kind of fascinating. Rodney pointed this out to me in our men's Bible study, and I thought this was such an incredible, interesting correlation. In the, in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, there is a genealogy written for the, the, the lineage of Christ. Now, I understand genealogies generally aren't the most exciting thing you go to. You're like, oh man, I can't wait to read about a genealogy. Yes! No one's doing that, right? Like, that's just not part of how we study the Bible. Genealogies, we tend to just skip right over. Well, in the first, first couple verses of Matthew uh, chapter, chapter 1, the genealogy for Christ is given, and in that genealogy is the name Boaz. From Abraham to David, and then, of course, from David to Christ, and in that lineage between Abraham and David is the name Boaz. And his father's name is named Salmon, which is pretty common. All the fathers, who, if you're familiar with the King James Version, this father begat that father, or that son, and this son, the next generation, begat so-and-so, right? Like the, the begats in the King James Version is very common. What's really interesting is when it comes to the name of Boaz in Matthew 1, it not only lists his father's name, which is common, but it lists his mother's name. And his mother's name is Rahab. How many of you know the story of Rahab? Right? This is the story of a woman who was a prostitute in the city of Jericho. As Israel was coming into the land of Canaan, here is again another foreign woman who chooses to make the God of Israel her God, and she is spared destruction in the city of Jericho. And she is brought in and I guess you would say assimilated into the country of Israel. And she marries a man named Salmon. Salmon, I think is how you pronounce it. And her son is Boaz. 
who here in this, in this story, as we read in Ruth, we see him showing this incredible kindness to a foreign woman. Maybe he learned some things from his mother. Maybe he grew up seeing some of the potential judgment that his mom may have endured for those who, though Israel we see as a nation who should follow the laws, we recognize and know that they don't always all follow the law. I'm sure Boaz witnessed as a child growing up some of the harsh criticism or judgment that his mother may have endured. And here he sees another woman, maybe similar to his own mom, where he recognizes, man, here's a woman who's going through some difficulty, and he shows incredible kindness. Another word you might throw in there is the word incredible grace. What's really fascinating is you start to look into that lineage. I was looking through it and looking at some of the stories. I want to show you something that's really absolutely profound as you walk through that lineage that is listed there. When you get to King David, King David reflects something very similar to the story we see in Ruth. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, there is a story of King David doing an incredible gracious act for one of his dear friends named Jonathan. See, at this point, King David is in the palace. He is the king. Saul has passed away. Jonathan has passed away. And when Saul gets it, or when David gets into his palace, he begins to inquire of his, I guess you would say, those he's in charge of, to find somebody that he can repay kindness to Jonathan's family, or for the sake of Jonathan is what it says. And so they find a servant named Ziba who, who John or David asks, hey, is there anybody that I can show this kindness to? And I want to pick up and show you some of the passages here in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 6. We see this. There is a servant that tells us that there is a remaining son of Jonathan that is still alive. His name is Mephibosheth. In verse 6 he says this, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. The reason he was there was because he was uh, petitioned by King David to come. Now, if you're familiar, I mean, Game of Thrones, you can talk about all these different old, old kings. They didn't like any kind of remaining heritage to exist. So if you're in Mephibosheth's shoes, you might be thinking, oh, crap, he's going to kill me. Right? Like, that's just the, the natural thought. And so you see him coming here, and he is terrified to come before King David because he doesn't know David's motive or intentions. As he says this, and he falls, and he pays homage to, to David, who is the reigning king, David says to him, Meshibotheth, behold, and he, Meshibotheth responds, I am your servant, verse 7. And David said to him, he has to tell him this, because David, or Meshibotheth, I'm sure is freaked out, like, dude, what's about to happen to me? And King David tells him, hey, listen, do not fear. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Technically, it's his grandfather. And you shall eat at my table always. Pay attention to what he says there. You shall eat at my table always. And of course, Meshibotheth is blown away by what David is saying. And he, say, he pays homage again. He says, listen to his response. What is your servant that you should show any kind of regard for a dead dog such as I. This is Moshebetheth's response to, to King David. 
Why, why are you showing me any kindness at all? Listen, if you know the story, he's a crippled man. Meshibbeth is a crippled man, for, probably from birth, or there was an accident, something that caused him to not be able to walk. That's the expression there, the expression as a dead dog. He's not necessarily debilitating his character. He just recognizes that as a, as a person, he struggles to show some form of societal value, if you will. I'm sure Meshibbeth experienced harsh, cruel, pain-felt words. Imagine in the, in the servants, I mean, he is the grandson of a king who is crippled, can you imagine the scutterbugs of the servants? Oh, man, this guy's useless. How long do we have to take care of this guy? You can hear, even in Meshubatheth's response, some of the maybe hard, painful words he experienced hearing. And here is a man, King David, who comes in and he says, listen, I want to do something for you. I want to care for you. Not only do I want to restore the lands that your fa- father had, your grandfather had, but I want you to sit at my table. Just like Boaz offered to Ruth when he was sitting there and he said, hey, listen, Ruth, come and sit at my table and eat the food that I have for you. Here, King David, as you go into the rest of the story, I just read a couple of the expressions here. In verse 10, he says, as he's giving the instruction to Ziba, his sons and his servants to take care of these fields, they're now responsible to do this on behalf of Meshibotheth. But King David says this, at the end of verse 10, but Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. The end of verse, I mean, verse 11, Ziba, the servant, he goes and he does this, but I want you to see what it says at the very end. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Wow. He, he was brought into the family. He was invited to seek and have a seat at the king's table. We see this incredible grace and mercy that King David shows on this man named Mephibosheth. No different than Boaz, showing this incredible grace and mercy to the person of Ruth in their time of hardship. You know what's amazing is you go into that lineage and you get to the person of Christ. Guess what? He shows the same kind of grace and mercy. In Matthew chapter 9, There's a story when Jesus meets Matthew, the author of the book. It says this in Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. And Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. How many of you like paying taxes? See, I don't see anybody raising their hands. The reality is this. We have accountants as buffers. We don't really necessarily put a face to the person we pay taxes to. But in this time, everybody knew who the face was that they were paying taxes to. And maybe sometimes, I'm just, I, I know this is probably isn't everybody, but maybe sometimes you've had some really snarky comments you've thought of saying to the IRS. Well, those snarky comments, while it goes to an organization and no one's feelings may technically be hurt, here in this day and age, Matthew felt those comments, personal attacks, right to his face because they knew who he was. He 
he probably had to have special security for him because the people despised him so greatly being a tax collector. Matthew probably experienced incredible, hurtful, hateful words being slung at him, and he had to walk through this. And here he comes to this encounter with Jesus, and Jesus says to him, hey, follow me. And of course, immediately Matthew rose and followed him, and I want you to see this in verse 10. And as Jesus uh, reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. What's happening there? Jesus is inviting Matthew to come sit at his table. Jesus is inviting not just Matthew, but many tax collectors and many sinners to come sit at his table. And look at what happens. The religious elite, the elitists, if you will. Those who think they're better than everybody else. Verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? I don't know if I put enough emphasis on that. Could you hear their pride, their snarky, dude, you're hanging out with tax collectors? What is wrong with you? You're hanging out with sinners? Dude, what is up with your master? Doesn't he know better? Doesn't he have any dignity for himself? I mean, you can just hear these these judgmental, harsh, cruel Pharisees just luring, hurling, harsh, cruel comments about who Jesus is associating with. And listen to what Jesus says. Listen to his response to them. As soon as Jesus hears this in verse 12, he goes, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, those who are broken, those who are hurting, those who are finding in themselves in absolute despair, who would say, hey, man, I'm a dead dog. I got nothing to offer. I love Jesus' response. He said, these are the people that I came for. Verse 13. Go and learn what this means. He's teaching even the Pharisees. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I come not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Wow. Listen, I just shared three stories of the lineage in the, in the line of Boaz that kind of goes and starts with Rahab, who, who came and showed kindness, if you're familiar with that story, to two servants that were in the city of Jericho. She showed kindness to them and spared their life. And then she, she chose to make God her God, and she became part of Israel. And here Boaz, again, shows that same family heritage, in a sense, to Ruth, shows her kindness, invites her to come and sit at his table, and he gives her food. King David does the same thing to Mephibosheth, where Mephibosheth, he sees himself as someone who is broken, who is sick, who needs help, has nothing to offer. And King David says, listen, come and sit at my table and be as one of my sons. And of course, Jesus examples that same behavior, because ultimately, the behavior that they are mimicking and reflecting is the behavior of God Almighty. Jesus says to the sinners, to those who are broken, who those who need help. And he says, hey, let's go have some food. Let's come sit at my table. So the big question is this. How does this apply to us? Man, these are cool stories. These are incredibly awesome stories. How does this story apply to us? In particular, how does this story, these stories, apply to us in our families? 
listen, the reality is this. Oftentimes, when it comes to family, we tend not to hold back our speech, our slurs, our words that are damaging and hurting. Isn't it true? You know, it's not like when you first meet somebody and you're kind and you're cordial after you get to know them, once they become your family and you live with them and you, you, you spend time with them, soon the niceties go away and you're not afraid to say the things you really think. And sometimes the things we really think we should probably not say. Hard things, hurtful things, damaging things, debilitating things that may have come out of our mouth. How does this apply to our family, and how do we look at what these stories are telling us and the example of Boaz in the story of Ruth? What is it that we can glean from this for ourselves in our own families? How do we, how do we, here's the question, how do we reflect the character of God's grace and mercy in our homes? Husbands to your wives, wives to your husbands. How do you reflect the character of God's grace and mercy in your homes? Boaz was incredibly kind. He was beyond kind. He went above and beyond. In fact, if you look at Ruth chapter 2, is it the 14th or 15th and 16th verse? You see Boaz go even beyond that. Verse 15 of Ruth 2. When she rose to glean, so they were probably having lunch, he invited her to eat at his table at lunch. So she was gleaning in the morning came and Boaz was kind and gave her food and water and sustenance until she was satisfied. And then she goes out to work to get more food. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young man saying, let her glean even among the sheaves. That means let her go beyond what is required by the Lord. Let her go into the field and actually get whatever it is she needs. In fact, he goes on beyond that. He tells him, do not reproach her, verse 16, and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. In other words, what's he saying? He's saying, take it off the cart. Take it off the wagon, put it on the ground and let her take it and don't rebuke her. He goes above and beyond caring for this woman who is by all means an outsider, marginalized by society. And Boaz shows incredible grace and mercy to this amazing woman here who is going through hardship and difficulty, who by all means would find herself broken. Unsure of where God's doing and where God's taking us. Have you ever felt like that? What's amazing is Ruth, receiving this grace and mercy from Boaz, goes back and gives it to Naomi. She brings her food. The grace and mercy that was offered to Ruth by Boaz, Ruth takes and helps provide for Naomi, who is, as we have concluded earlier, is in a state of deep despair. And so here's the application in our life as, as believers and as, as followers. Is, listen, how are we reflecting God's grace and mercy in our homes? Grandma and grandpa, are you showing that grace and that mercy as something to teach your children and your grandchildren? What blows my mind is Naomi... Naomi would have known Rahab. Maybe they shared stories of their hardships and their difficulties. And if you're familiar with the story, they have a son named Obed. Maybe grandma and grandpa taught Obed, hey, you need to be kind. And you need to show this kind of grace and mercy because it was shown in our family in extreme ways. Church, do we show that kind of grace and mercy to our family and our homes? 
It's one thing to say, hey, God, you're my God, and I'll, I'll do what you want. But when it comes to the home and we act totally different or contrary to our God, and we don't show his character. Brothers and sisters, and I'm not just talking about little ones. Adult brothers and sisters, maybe you guys have said some harsh things to one another and there's a lot of hurt and there's a lot of pain and there's, there's something that you need to resolve. Man, maybe the problem is you haven't shown any grace or mercy and reflected the character of God in your family. I don't know. But what we can learn from the story of Ruth, what we can learn from the story of David and Mephibosheth and the story of Jesus associating with sinners is, listen, grace and mercy play a huge part of our walk as believers especially in our homes. Parents with children, and children likewise to their parents of any age, do you reflect God's character, his behavior, in showing grace and mercy to one another? That's the family dynamic application. It can go beyond that even into the church dynamic. Brothers and sisters in Christ, are we quick to show grace and mercy, the kindness, the, the, the genuine, excuse me, authentic care and compassion that Boaz shows towards Ruth? Do we do that in our church gatherings? Do we show that authentic, genuine care and compassion for someone's well-being? This is reflecting the character of God. That's the reflection of the grace and mercy that we get to have as believers. Now, if you're here today, and you don't know the Lord. Maybe you're here today and you go, man, I'm just here by accident. I would argue there is no accident. Maybe you're watching online. This is the first time you're watching online. And you're like, man, I just happened to be strolling through and I don't know why. But this is the one that popped up. Listen, that's not an accident. Just like Ruth didn't accidentally show up in the field that Boaz was in. It wasn't an accident. You need to hear this message. Somebody needs to hear this message about being in a space of despair, brokenness, and that there is somebody that offers you a seat at their table. Maybe you're here today and you don't know the Lord. and You've never made the call or commitment like Ruth did where she said, I want you to be my God. I want your people, Naomi, to be my people. I want your God to be my God. Maybe, maybe you've never made that commitment. I'm here to tell you, that commitment doesn't just some passive guy walking by throwing some pity change in your direction. No, when you make God your God, God says, listen, I have a seat at my table and I want you to come and sit and eat with me. Just like Ruth was comforted and she was satisfied. That's the same promise we get when we go to the seat of God and his table. He offers us comfort and, and he offers us satisfaction like nothing else. And so I want to invite you. Listen, I want to share some passages that really speak to this. John chapter 14. Jesus says these words in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 23. He says, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. One of the things you could say and, and put in there is they will reflect his character and his behavior, his character of grace and mercy. My Father will love him, and I want you to see this next line. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus sits there and promises, listen, we will come and make our home with you. If you haven't accepted the Lord and you need to call out and say, Lord, I want God to be, if, I want your God to be my God. 
Jesus is saying, listen, love me, keep my words, reflect my character, reflect my behavior, and we'll make our dwelling with you. But that's not specific enough. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, it says this, Behold, Jesus is speaking here, it says, to one of the letters of the seven churches in Revelation, he says these words, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, Look at this next line. I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, I'm knocking at the door. I'm offering you a seat at the table, a table of the king of kings, and he will treat us like his sons and his daughters. Just like Mephibosheth experienced that life of sitting at the king's table, being considered one of the sons of the king, Jesus offers that same promise to each and every one of us. And if you have never called on the Lord and never asked him to be your God, I want to encourage you, he's offering you a seat at his table. For those of us in the church, maybe we've walked away from the table. Maybe we have forgotten the kindness and the grace and the mercy that God has offered us. The table seat is still open. You, you may have walked away and said, hey, listen, God's got nothing good for me. He's walking. You may think that. The promise is that he is always there for us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And maybe what we need to do is remember this aspect of grace and mercy, and we need to make our way back to the table. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. If you're familiar with the church of Corinthians, the nicest way to say it is they were broken. That's the nice way of saying it. Much like us, they struggled in a lot of different things. Paul speaks to this church in Corinth and he's reminding them of an incredible truth that we have been walking through with the example of Ruth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, Paul says these words, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And as God said, listen to what he says, I will make my dwelling among them, and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In verse 18, you can jump down there, verse 18, he says this, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. That's the promise. Sons and daughters, you're invited to the table and to the seat of God. If you've never made that call in your life, man, I want to encourage you to make that call. Call on him. Call on the name of Jesus. He's offering you a table where you can receive comfort and satisfaction. I imagine going back to the story of Ruth. When Ruth was sitting there, sitting next to the reapers, she probably felt a little out of place, maybe even a little awkward. Not sure really why someone is showing any kind of kindness to her, being a foreigner. Being a woman in that day and age is different and difficult. And here's this man who shows incredible grace and mercy to Ruth. He invites her in. He cares for her with an with a absolute authentic care and compassion. And so to the church, man, we really need to reflect this in our families. Dads, fathers, husbands, 
We need to lead in exampling this aspect and this character of God, this aspect of kindness, of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Grandmas and grandpas, moms and dads, brothers and sisters, this should be at the core. We should be desiring, authentically looking for ways that we can share God's compassion and God's care for one another. We see this exampled in the story of Boaz. I'm going to close with a word of prayer. My heart is that if you do not know the Lord, even in the next, man, there's no magic prayer, right? There's no magic prayer. But if you do not know the Lord and you desire for him to be your God, as we conclude in prayer, just, just a simple conversation. It's being real. It's being authentic. It's talking to the Lord God and saying, God, I want you to be my God. Know that he offers you a seat at his table. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Man, we come to you and thank you so much for this example we have in Scripture of Boaz and Ruth and the character that he reflected of you, Lord. Lord, I pray as a church that we would examine our lives, Lord, examine our homes. Lord, where we lack grace and mercy and kindness, Lord, that those things would come and they would take a huge part in our families, that we would see your character reflected in our homes. And Lord, that by reflecting your character that our families would be healed, that there would be comfort and there would be sustenance and there would be satisfaction in our homes that we would find by reflecting your character and your grace. Lord, if there's someone here that doesn't know you, if there's someone here that is struggling in deep, deep despair, Lord, I pray that, that their heart would be touched by your spirit and that they would know, they would know without a shadow of a doubt, Lord, that you are calling them, that you're knocking on their heart's door and that you are offering them a place to sit with you lord i pray that they would respond to it and that they would not let it just be some passive thing that comes and goes but that it would be something that they choose to call out to you lord i ask this in jesus holy name amen